So this week we will talk about public speaking, and we have a special guest today, um, Ben Taylor. And Ben is the chief AI evangelist at DataRobot. And if you use LinkedIn, you must have seen Ben in your feed quite often. And if you don't, you most likely saw him on one of the conferences or webinars or somewhere on the internet. So Ben does a lot of talks, at least once per week, if I'm correct, maybe even more often. Yeah, it's it's a lot. I, I feel like it is every week. Um, <laughs> yeah. But so, it's, yeah, naturally, it's, yeah, it's it was very difficult for me to think of anyone better for this talk than you. And as we see, you're right now sitting in a car, and uh, so being ready to give a talk, like to do public speaking, to be on a podcast at, uh, you know, in any situation, not in your studio. This is uh, also a very special moment because typically people see you in the studio in this, uh, you know, like uh, you have some light bulbs there, like it's, yeah. uh, you know, uh, with maybe a uh, good microphone and, uh, you know, all this studio setup. But today is different. So we uh, caught Ben driving. Right. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, I'm stopped right now, so I'm being yes. safe. <laughs> okay, that's good. Okay, so welcome, Ben. Thanks for finding time in your tight schedule to talk to us. And uh, yeah, welcome. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. I, I I love this topic. I think it's very important for anyone that's listening. Anyone can become a great speaker, and I and I've definitely been a bad speaker before. So you. Anything you want to become better at, you can get better through practice. And so practice is important, but it's also, there's a few rules that I've learned along the way that are useful okay. to, to hopefully short circuit people's learning. Yes, we will definitely get back to, uh, to this, to these rules. But maybe before we go to that, maybe you can just briefly tell us about your background. Uh, so I know yeah. a bit about your, uh, you because I followed you in LinkedIn. Uh, but yeah, maybe you can just tell us... Uh, bit about your career journey so far. Yeah, so I studied chemical engineering in college and I planned on going to medical school. I'm really glad that didn't happen. I don't think I would have been very happy being a doctor. Um, I went and worked for Intel and Micron for five years in semiconductors. So this is semiconductor manufacturing. It was NAND flash uh, memory. And I worked in photolithography, process control, fault detection, yield analysis. And what that essentially says is I got a really good sampling of applied data in semiconductor. Um, and then I went and worked at a hedge fund as a quant, building stock models. And then I went and joined a Sequoia Capital company called HireVue, and I was their chief data scientist. So I built out their data science team, and I helped them launch their AI product. And then four years ago, I got the itch to go do a startup um, that I co-founded with David Gonzalez, and that was a deep learning AutoML startup called Zeph.ai. And we joined, uh, we were acquired by DataRobot a year ago, and I've been working for DataRobot ever since. Okay. I actually didn't know that it was acquired. So I didn't know that part of the story. Okay, that's, yeah. uh, congratulations. Well, a bit late, maybe. But <laughs> but no, late it's, never. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it, it's so funny going to do a startup. You, it's 100 times harder than you thought it would be. And so I, I feel like after going through that process, I, if, if someone's a, a founder, I feel like they're a brother or sister to me automatically, e even if they're a competitor, 
<laughs> uh, there's just a very special thing, special place in my heart for people that understand the pains of payroll and delivering on contracts. So just, I think one thing I forgot to mention that if at any moment of time you have a question to Ben, so there is a pinned link in the live chat that you can just click and then ask any question on Slider. And then uh, as we move along, I will ask this question. So let's start. So what is evangelism and what does a, an AI chief evangelist do? Yeah, that's a great question. So evangelism, that's something that a lot of tech companies have. And so someone who's an evangelist, they could be a professional speaker or, or be a frequent speaker where they're out speaking. Uh, for my role, it's very much focused around um, not just evangelizing the data robot product, but figuring out how to evangelize AI. So how do we get companies excited about using AI, even if they don't want to use our particular product? How do we get people... Uh, you know, thinking about the art of the possible. So how can we stir the creative juices and get them thinking about what could they do this year with AI? Uh, for some people, I joke and say I'm the AI missionary. So I'm, you know, if you didn't think your company needed AI, I, there's a good chance I can convince you otherwise um, with, with the right format. And to be a little bit more specific, I see evangelism sitting in between product and engineering and marketing. So marketing for a tech company is very complicated because a lot of the marketing can be, it's technical. So you have to, you never want to have marketing that feels misleading or it's incorrect or embarrassing because for people that are traditionally marketing, they might not have the technical background to get the messaging right. And so a lot of times I'm reviewing blog content and some of the messaging stuff. But for me, I think that's a lot of fun because it feels like it's a tough challenge. So if you and I are competing on writing a blog article about AI, or if anyone listening, if we're competing together, how can you, and this all goes back to speaking. So how can you create content that changes an audience or moves them emotionally? And the criticism I'll throw out to end this rant is um, the common criticism is people fall into the rational mindset and that's the features and speeds. So I want you to like my product because it has one more feature than the competition, or I want you to buy my hardware because it's a little faster than NVIDIA or Intel. And that's a very weak argument because that, that's not why humans don't. Humans like to make emotional decisions and then they like to confirm their emotional decisions with rational insights. The reverse doesn't really work to just sell you on rational arguments it's yeah so i so i love studying that part of it so this is like uh, your role is to speak in public then like uh, promote ai promote your company as well and uh, did you also say you kind of you are an editor in a blog so you also review you review yeah okay. and we also um we're also starting up a program this year where we're going to be doing active research um, where we, where I am still programming, I am still doing AI applications. But normally, when you do R and D, it cater, it, it answers to product and it answers to customer needs. Where this will be very, very different. I'm very excited about it this year. Where we're doing, um, we're doing R and D that answers to uh, the attention needs of the market. So can we 
do an AI application that is inspiring? Can we do an AI application that's relatable? Can we do an AI application that furthers this cause of everyone needs AI? And so that that's a very exciting thing for me to be working on this year. Um, and then the last thing I'll, I'll say is really all of this is about understanding a process. So it's, it, it really isn't about me speaking. It's about, can I understand the recipe or the process for developing an excellent keynote or, or training someone else to go give it instead? And that's where things get really exciting because you always want to, you know, you, you, you hear people say nail it and scale it with product, but that's also true with you know, individuals. It's true with yourself. It's also true with marketing. If you can nail a process, then you can critique it, you can measure it, and you can scale it. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah, that's really the, my obsession is around scaling. Okay. So this is like probably uh, like a way of scaling it. Uh, like, uh, I don't know if maybe it's a bit ambitious, but like being on this podcast and then talking about public speaking is like a uh, kind of a way of scaling it right about educating other people how to do uh how to oh yeah in public yeah, yeah. so if, for anyone listening if they can go give a better talk about ai that motivates an audience and changes them that honestly helps me so <laughs> okay uh, do you know uh like I'm, I'm not sure like if there's any difference between evangelism and uh, developer advocacy uh, advocacy do you know if like is it synonyms or like it's a bit different uh, maybe there's some overlap there there could be some overlap mm-hmm. some some of these titles are a little funny because um, what do you actually do like it, yeah so I, I think you could look at different companies that have evangelism roles and what they actually do could be very different mm-hmm. between the two of them so it's like a data science right so like you don't really know oh, yeah. what, uh, what it, what a company means by data science until you actually see like the job description and talk to them and to figure out what they actually need yeah yeah exactly I, I i i do like thinking of evangelism as um fitting in between marketing and engineering because mm-hmm. they they have to they have to know both worlds mm-hmm. they have to understand and, and actually for me, I really like being stuck in the middle. And so at HireVue, I was stuck in the middle between the data science team and the IO psychologists. So the IO psychologists, they're the ones that develop um, hiring assessments. You know, you're going to go fill out this assessment to go work at a bank or something. And they want to flesh out your personality traits and map that to potential uh, performance in the future. And so I, I love being in the middle because when you're in the middle and you can understand both sides, you, you suddenly have a very useful perspective. So if you're just in marketing, you're not going to appreciate engineering and you're not going to even understand how to communicate it. And if you're just in engineering, you're going to fall prey to the rational mindset mm-hmm. and a lot of factoids that don't matter emotionally. They don't move the needle. And so by living in the middle, it, it yeah. So maybe if that's a theme for me, I just want to spend my whole career living in the middle of whatever that is, like whatever the next thing is. I just want to be right in the middle because you get a very unique point of view. So, yeah, well, now you give one talk a week, right? Even more often, maybe. But uh, well, like I can imagine that it wasn't the case for you all the time, right? Do, do you remember your first experience uh, uh, yeah. speaking in public? Yeah, so I think it actually started when I was at Intel and Micron. So I remember I was so excited. Um, so if you want to if you want to go back in time and find the worst talks that Ben Taylor has ever given on planet Earth, 
they were inside Intel and Micron. So I remember I was so obsessed. So I had a math minor at one point in my life. I thought I wanted to be a mathematician. And I was so obsessed about some of this math regarding controllers. So this math is pretty intense, like it's state space, linear algebra. And I remember giving a talk about some breakthrough on a certain type of controller for like state tracking. And the math was intense. So like, imagine me like sitting you down to walk you through an hour of math. Like you and I are technical, but even today you'd be like, I'll pass. <laughs> no, thank you. And I remember giving that talk and I, I think I wrote the whole talk in, is it Beamer or LaTeX? Like mm -hmm. it was just awful. Like you should never give a presentation in Beamer. And so I'm giving this talk and I remember looking over and there's a senior engineer at the end of the table and these rooms are dark. We have the lights off and he's asleep with his head cocked back and his mouth is wide open, just <laughs> leaping during my talk. And at the time, I think I took offense. I just thought like, oh my gosh, like I can't believe this individual is missing out on this good content I'm sharing. But today I would say I gave an, I gave a terrible talk. <laughs> I didn't understand my audience and it, you know, it, it was awful where, where today I, you know, I, I, I care a lot about the audience feedback because it's a, it's a point of reference. Did you give a good talk? Could you have given a better talk? You need to consult with the audience after the talk to kind of find out. Um, and you're not going to make everyone happy. Like you're, you're always going to have some people that doesn't matter how good of a speaker you are, speaker you, you are, you're always going to have some people that didn't like the talk or they've got some criticism. And then the, the challenge that I fall into is I've been criticized for giving talks that are too technical. I've been criticized for giving talks that weren't technical enough. And I've had those criticisms on the same talk. So that's an example of like, well, you're not going to make everyone happy, but you, you, but there's always room for improvement. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I, yeah, I've learned a lot since then. That was seven years ago. Eight, yeah. Eight years ago, making an engineer fall asleep. And, and I gave plenty of terrible talks since then, but I, my terrible talks are becoming less frequent now. Okay. And, and I, yeah. So that was like maybe the time when you would give, I don't know, one talk a year to the time when yeah. one talk per week. Yeah, I guess it happened, you said, in like seven, eight years. Yeah, I started to speak. So Higher View, they helped my speaking career. So when I started at Higher View, they needed someone out there talking about AI and data science in the HR space. So I started going to HR conferences and... And I, I think I kind of made my, a name for myself right out of the gate. And, I, and it's interesting because right out of the gate, I, na I made a name for myself, maybe not because I was a great speaker, but because I was controversial. Like I was, I was rough around the edges. I remember presenting at PSYOP. I think I was one of the only data science speakers there. And I was saying a lot of things that were um, pretty, I don't want to say disrespectful, but like, I remember I, I gave a talk to an audience and I'm essentially telling the entire, I'm insulting the entire audience. So that's a rule of storytelling and speaking. Don't insult the audience. But I remember insulting the entire audience and I said, you guys don't understand statistics. Like essentially I'm insulting the entire in industrial occupational psychology field. I'm saying you guys don't understand statistics. And so I'm going to teach you how to do proper cross-validation. And this talk was seven years ago in Philadelphia. And I think I'm showing them how to do K folding because I found out they weren't doing that. And so I was upset about that. And I remember 
and, I, and I'm not thinking I'm being a dick. I'm not thinking I'm being mean. I just give this talk like, hey, you guys need to know this. You're welcome. And I remember, um, I remember seeing, uh, I ran into someone six months later who had been at the talk up in Park City, Utah. And they were saying, hey, um, remember that talk you gave in Philadelphia? I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, I'm thinking like a compliment's coming. I go, yeah. And he said, <laughs> yeah, you were a real ass. And I was like, oh, okay. Tell me why. And, and he said, he essentially said, like, it was interesting because he agreed with everything I said. He said, you were right. But what you said, but he kind of said, we didn't like hearing it from you. And, and, and part of that, I don't want to gossip or like go down another path, but it's essentially saying like, I'm not an IO psychologist. I'm an outsider. I don't have a PhD in IO and I'm essentially raining on their parade and insulting their career. But since then I've, I don't think I've really had, I'm not a controversial speaker anymore. Like I, I don't, there are tricks in storytelling where you actually can offend the audience, but you have to be really careful how you do it. And you actually don't, you never want to leave a talk where the audience still feels offended. So it's, um, yeah, it, it, it's interesting. So I, I guess to finish the thought is higher view. I started doing a lot of speaking. So I was you know, speaking all over the U S I got to speak in Sydney. And then when I went and did our startup, I started speaking even more. So I spoke in South Africa, Madrid, Dublin, um, all over the US. And I got to the point where I started to get invited to go speak to some impressive companies. So like um, Red Bull, Goldman Sachs, Procter & Gamble, Amazon, different companies, they, like a rocket company says, hey, will you please come present to us? And, and those invites were coming because some of those employees had seen my other talks. And so for me, that, that has been some of the, the most fun I've had have been giving private talks to these companies because um, you meet some really interesting people. But yeah, ha yeah happy so to explain why, because it, <laughs> I, th I think it's important for the audience to know there's nothing about me. There's a process here. So it, there, it's not like I'm better looking or my voice sounds better than anyone else. There's nothing about me specific. There's a process here for anyone listening to become a better speaker and to become a great speaker. Well, maybe um, let's jump into this process. So what the process is. Yeah, so it's, um, so you have this concept of attention. So you walk out on the stage, you being the speaker, you, you're given attention for free, but you can quickly lose it. So you can imagine if you or myself were walking out on stage, COVID's over, we're gonna walk out in front of an audience of a thousand people or, or even a hundred people, you all have their attention but they are going to quickly decide if they're going to pull out their phones, their laptops or disengage. And so um, I, I like having, so th there's lots of subtopics. One of the subtopics is around first impression. So how do you introduce yourself? What's the best way to introduce yourself? But getting into the meat of the talk, I think it's important to have a talk that leverages storytelling. You jump in with vivid details. You, you have a story that's engaging. Because think of your audience as being like cold taffy. You have to warm them up. You can warm them up with humor. You can warm them up with storytelling. And if you can warm them up, they're going to be much more receptive to the key points you want to share. And, and, and so if I had to simplify the talk, the beginning of the talk is the warm up. And that could be storytelling. It could be something that's more creative, maybe something that's silly, nonsensical, surprising. There's a lot of emotions you can play with. So I... I, when I would design my talks, I used to write the emotion on every slide that I wanted the audience to have. 
And the emotions could be concern, relief, anxiety, happiness, sadness. Like they, they could be all, all the emotions you can imagine. And by writing it down on each slide, it would allow me to amplify it or like have like, what is the goal for the, the felt audience experience? And I think of it as being a monotonic speaker. No one wants to listen to a monotonic speaker, but in the same vein, I'm not going to warm up the audience if I just have one emotion. So if I kind of have this whipsaw and warm them up and the humor can be a very powerful tool for that, then it's also really important to have key takeaways. Cause if I just, if I just have a talk that is storytelling, warming them up, then at the end you might say, well, what was the point of this talk? And you'd have, that'd be a fair criticism. What is the point of this talk? Like, are, is this a storytelling festival? Like it's supposed to be a tech conference. So like you need both. And I, I think it's really important to decide what is the gift that you will give to the audience. And, and that probably sounds arrogant to say, cause it's not like what I'm trying to say is you need to give the audience something for free, some learned insight, some key point. If they never see you again, they need to be able to leave and say, thank you. Thank you. I, that's useful for me. And so you need to identify what that is. So identify the warm up, identify what the key takeaways are that they can have. And, it, and it's hard because there can't be a lot of them. I, I can't have 10 key takeaways. Like people don't remember because the, the other thing for a talk is they need to remember it. They, if I give a talk and everyone says, Oh, that was a great talk. And then they wake up the next morning. Oh, I forgot what the talk was about. It wasn't a great talk. That was a terrible talk. So decide what the key takeaways are. There's other tricks you can have in the talk where you can have a call to action you can have something at the end where you try to engage people to go to a, a certain place, go watch something or reach out to you specifically uh, for further questions. So sometimes people forget the call to action. So you mentioned <clears throat> warm up. then, uh, you know, when you get to the middle of the presentation, you need to um, use storytelling and then think which kind of emotions you want to appeal to. Right. And then you really need to think of the key takeaway messages. Like, and it should be very few of them, one, two, three, right? Yeah. Uh, and then at the end, there is call to action. What do you want the audience to do, right? What do you want them yeah. to do after this talk, right? And this is yep. like the, the, the main the main elements of a talk, right? Yep. Uh, yeah, so how do you, like, I, I just imagine, like, uh, let's say I go give a talk and, uh, you know, at the beginning, I start saying, hey, I am Alexei, I am a lead data scientist, I told Alex, blah, blah, blah. And then, like, is it a good way to introduce myself? Like, is there a better way? Yeah, there is a better way. And there's, um, there's different tiers of expertise on how to introduce yourself. Um, so the, yeah, there's, so the word, you can introduce yourself as just your name. Like I could say, my name is Ben or my name is Alexi. I'm going to talk to you today. You haven't given the audience a reason. What are your credentials? Why should I listen to you? Like, are you some random homeless person on the street? Like, who, who are you? Why should I listen to you? And the reason it's important to give them a reason to listen to you is it's, you can think of it as pulling the band and storytelling. Like they're, they're going to lean in. Like you get on stage. Should I put my phone, should I have my phone out or put it, should I listen to you? And if you introduce yourselves with some credibility, then I, I want to listen to you. So if you say, hey, I have this much experience. So most people do a, a resume overview. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, I worked here. This is my title. This is my amount of experience. I'm going to give you this talk. And that's not 
terrible. Like that, most people do that. Um, I've done that from a lot of my talks. A better approach, which is very difficult, is you would immediately jump into a story where the audience concludes that you are the hero of that story. You, it's very interesting because if you force conclusions for the audience, it weakens the point. So, so imagine if I jump into a hero story, like in, we're right there in the action, I'm talking about a, a, an AI problem I was solving or some impossible problem that I'm up against. And then if at the end of that, if I say, and therefore I'm a great data scientist, like what just happened to your confidence? Just, like it just like, now I'm actually crossing the line into arrogance, but I tell a hero story where there's chaos, there's an opportunity to fail, and then there's success. That can actually, what I've done is I've taken you on an emotional journey. Because if I just do a CV overview, that's a, that's a rational argument. But the, the fun thing is if you win on the emotional journey, if I tell you anything else, it just confirms your first impression. So if I tell you I was the chief data scientist at this company, or if I tell you that I did a startup, like it just confirms the first impression. But if I try to start with a rational approach, I actually won't be able to fill to that. I'll only be able to fill to the line of, if I'm lucky, I'll get to smart. But the other approach, you can actually exceed smart. If you exceed smart, you land in hero territory. If you're in hero territory, then the perceptions are very, very different than you're perceived as being in the top 1%, which is interesting because you're not being dishonest and you're not lying and you're not, you're not trying to pull the wool over people's eyes, but you're entertaining them with the story. And the last point I'll add is the hero's journey is the story that's been told for thousands of years through all of society. And if you look at these Disney cartoons or Pixar cartoons, there are, a lot of them are templated after the hero's journey. And it's almost like there's something in our DNA where humans will celebrate any hero that has some element of risk. And it usually comes back to them achieving some value, not just for them, but for society. Like we benefit from a hero. If you're a hero, I benefit vice versa. Yeah, that's a pretty high bar. So I'm wondering maybe if you have like a 30 second example just to understand uh, how it might well, it, look like the, you remind me it's it is a high bar and it's something that i don't expect people to do mm -hmm. well there's an important alternative that you can do and that is having someone else introduce you uh -huh. so a lot of times you'll have a chair at a conference that'll introduce you but i would say they do it they don't do it well mm -hmm. because they're reading your bio So I imagine me, like I look at your bio and I'm blah, 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 like I'm, or you're doing it for me, just reading the bio. That doesn't feel authentic. There's no emotion to it. But if I read your bio through the land, storytelling lens mm -hmm. and I say, I am so excited about the next speaker. And we've probably like heard this before at a conference, mm -hmm. but it really isn't something that should be laughed at. Like if I say, I am so excited about this next speaker, Alexi, he is one of the best, you know, and go down the list. Um, it changes everything because I, I could actually get you into hero territory just with my introduction of you. Mm -hmm. But if you introduce yourself or if I introduce myself, we can't get that high. So to go back to your question, to tell the hero's journey, I might pick an AI project in the last six months or 12 months where I've nearly failed. Mm -hmm. And I might just dive into the story 
And, and really it's about maximizing attention. So for most of the people in our industry, they're very technical. A lot of them tend to be more introverted. They're not going to dance on stage or sing. And so mastering these storytelling techniques is not something that most of them feel comfortable with. But I, but I want to kind of plead with the audience that if you do, if you master these techniques, it's game-changing. It's, it can be life-changing. You can, you, you can make an audience cry, talking about AI, which is like the, the craziest thing. Like if I told you like, hey, give you $100 if you can go find someone in the front row that dropped. And I'm not saying like I've succeeded at doing this, but I'm saying it is possible. You, you could go and give a keynote and find someone who, who you've been able to push past that emotional barrier in a way that feels authentic, where it feels like a lot of times we talk about the technical gift, like the factoids, but I would also offer with a really good talk, there's an emotional gift. Mm-hmm. You've given them a perspective or a point of view or an experience that they're grateful for, and they'll remember how they felt during that experience. Okay. Yeah, well, this sounds almost impossible for somebody like me who is like a technical person. So I'm, uh, I'm a data scientist. I'm used to, uh, you know, just uh, using facts. And then uh, yeah. like, I, I think, okay, I am a data person and I like data. So I will just show a lot of data to others and they will like this data and they will get convinced. So how somebody technical like me, or let's say like, probably like a developer, a data scientist, uh, some other engineer, like the technical person, how can they go from this, uh, from this uh, fact-based, uh, you know, presentation to something like to story-based, like how do we craft this story? Yeah, that, yeah, that's a great question. So I, I would say that leaning too much on the data can handicap you. It actually hurts your, because I, the standard data science presentations that I walk through will be, they're talking about one project they did, but they're gonna have 10 or 15 slides that go through their approach. And the approach is not useful. Like if I'm an executive, like if I'm a data scientist, I'm going to critique you, fine, like I can go through the approach. So I like to tease data scientists that do this style of presentation by saying they're fishing for partial credit or they're trying to remind you that they're smart and, I, and I'm, I'm not criticizing, I'm actually criticizing myself. So if I go back six or seven years, I remember giving some presentations to higher view executives where during the presentation, the CEO would interrupt me and say, Ben, we know you're smart. That's why we hired you. You don't have to keep reminding us. And that's not a compliment. That what that's telling you is I'm not communicating. Executives, they've got so much bandwidth. I'm not communicating. So, so sometimes going through the data can actually hurt your ability to communicate. Like you still wanna have some data and rational um, conclusion. So I think for people listening, storytelling is not just about giving a presentation. Storytelling can be used at a strategic dinner. You're with uh, you know, potential customers, with customers, with prospects. You're at a conference networking with people. Your ability to tell stories can impact you on the personal level. It can impact you as a speaker. It's, it's a very important skill set. And so I've become a fan of, for people listening that are parents, so you're a parent, I'm a parent. Um, our kids want us to read stories at night. Mm-hmm. And 
you can read stories at night, but I would encourage you to tell stories at night. So you and I, you know, we've been on this earth for a while. We've, we've made some mistakes. We've been dumb kids before. And so I noticed that me telling my kids stories at night, they love my stories way more than they love reading a book, like some book about a hen or some chicken or something that does something me telling. And so one of the things I'd encourage people to do is tell your kids stories at night about you or about things you've done and try to practice some of these storytelling tricks and see if you can captivate their attention. So if you tell a story at night and if your kids are not asking you to tell another one, you've got work to do. (laughs) But if you begin to become a better storyteller where every night your kids are begging you for the second story or tell another story, please, you're making progress. And that might sound very silly that you practicing telling your kids stories at night is going to make you a better speaker, but it's true. You will be, if you, and you can also read books. There's stories that stick. There's the hero, 10,000 faces. There's that one last point I'll point out. I, I love that this feels very childish. It feels like storytelling, like hopefully people in data science are rolling their eyes. Like I'm grown up. I don't have time for storytelling, but Pixar how much money do they make with these movies? Like Pixar makes hundreds of millions of dollars with these movies. This isn't a guess. It's not a game. This is a, this is a science. When Pixar comes out with a new movie, they're going to invest hundreds of millions of dollars sometimes in this production. This movie better work. It better get that type of return. And so if you look at it that way, if you're a data scientist working for Pixar or Disney, these movies are going to make money and storytelling works. It's a science. It's not, it's not some shaman or some goofy person saying, you know, get on stage and tell a story. It's, there's real business attached to this mm-hmm. significant business. And it's, so it's an, it's an opportunity for anyone in tech to, um, yeah, to, to learn from it, leverage it, use it. Cause it, in the end, you're trying to maximize attention of your audience. Because the saddest thing is, what if you get to your key point? We talk about two to two, three points you want to share with the audience. What if you get to your key point at the end to share and half of them are on their phones? Half of them are checked out. Even the ones that think they're listening, they're not actually listening. They're like daydreaming. They're, they're giving you like 30% of their focus. Then that's too bad. That's sad. Like you actually had a key insight to share, but the, the catalyst to transfer that was dull or dead and, and you've probably listened you go to a data conference how many how many talks are forgettable like most of them most of them is like and it's not an insult it's just true most of them most of the talks are forgettable how many of those people were smart most of them yes most of them are all very them. smart all of them like all of them they're very smart they're very accomplished unfortunately most of the talks were forgettable <laughs> so the challenge for everyone listening is make sure your talk so so I, I think you mentioned impossible a few times and I, I actually like that because I like having impossible goals. So when I go to give a talk, there's a lot of little talks that you just kind of have to give. You don't have a lot of prep to do, but for the big talks, the big keynotes, the most important talks that you're looking forward to, my goal with those talks is when I give the talk, I want it to be the best talk I've ever given in my life. And that's, that's not always possible. That's an impossible goal, but sometimes it happens. I also want the talk to be remembered for five years. What I mean by that is if you attend the talk, if I never see you again, but if I run into you somewhere traveling five years later, you can say, I remember your talk. 
at that conference. And then the, the third part would be, if there is audience feedback, I wanna be the number one speaker for the entire conference. From audience feedback, not from speaker feedback, not from conference organizers feedback, from the audience feedback. I wanna be the number one best speaker. And those three, I've accomplished all three of them individually at different times. Like I've had conferences where I've been the best speaker. I've had talks where people have remembered it for five years or longer, but to have the goal to accomplish all of them. And I've had talks that have been, I've obviously had one talk somewhere that was my best talk ever for someone, <laughs> but like for me, I mean, for, for, I have a best Ben Taylor talk. I don't know what that talk is, but to have that as a goal as you're getting ready to go into these keynotes, it's an impossible goal, but I think it's a goal that everyone can have. You're going to go give an important talk in the next six months. But for people starting out, that could just be a local meetup. They've never given a talk before. You're going to present a local meetup. So obsess about it. Try to make this the best talk you've ever given. Try to make sure you can do something so this talk will be remembered for five years. And if there is audience feedback and there's other speakers competing against you, try to be the best talk. And, and if you're, and, and I'm not the best talk all the time. So you can learn, like, I'm, I'm sure I've been the worst, like bottom, bottom tier on some conferences. You can learn from it. Yeah, but going back to the question I asked. So like, uh, what was that? Ah, so how you, um, um, like you, you told the, like to become, so you, you told us a story like uh, that uh, some executive at some point told you that, hey, Ben, we didn't hire you to be, uh, we know you're smart, but here, like, you need to, you know, make it uh, digestible for us. So how did you go from uh, Ben Taylor back then, you know, speaking in front of uh, executives and not being able to to communicate to them to Ben Taylor now who gives uh, talks that, uh, that they remembered for, you know, for five years for being like, um... telling kids uh, stories or like, is there something else like people can do to, um, you know, to, to come from, uh, from that state to the state where you are now, or just practice. I think that's tough. Cause a lot of it just comes down to experience. So even that example I gave when he said that I was confused, like, and I don't think I had a follow-up action. Like I, I did probably didn't learn from it for a couple of years. And it wasn't until maybe it wasn't even until I went and did my own startup that I finally, because one of the things I was doing, I would try to spoon feed or teach the executive statistical facts. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, I want, I want you to understand why you, an AUC chart is so nice. Or I want you to understand what I had to do because your data was so dirty. I want you to appreciate. And I saw it as like, if I give you enough of these little factoids, we will, you're going to fall in love with it just because I, I'm in love with this stuff. You're going to fall in love with it and it'll be, we'll all be better off. And that was a very naive perspective because what I didn't know is the CEO is living on a plane, you know, trying to save these accounts, like very large million dollar accounts that could be churned or lost. And he's constantly up against these quarters and arguing with board members and, you know, firing and hiring. And so when it comes to mental bandwidth, he has no mental bandwidth. And and so So I didn't know that now. And so there is an experience thing. You just have to make, hopefully you can learn from other people's failures, like try to follow people and learn from people that are like, for anyone that's put machine learning in production, they've screwed up at some point. They've had something go wrong. A model didn't generalize. There was feature drift. 
version control. They went to go retrain the model and the original training set was gone. It was deleted or like they've had, they've made mistakes. So you can learn from other people, like try to follow people that have made these mistakes. But um, yeah, it's, I wish I could have learned these lessons sooner, but part of it's just kind of being hit over the head mm -hmm. enough. But I, I guess the last thing is seeing, seeing the world through other people's shoes or the, from their perspective is useful. So in the moment, if I, if I had actually really understood the horrors and the stress that a CEO deals with, my talks would have been very different. Mm -hmm. Or if I, if I knew how much anxiety my Amazon bill was causing them, because from my perspective, it's like, oh, it's the cost of research, like mm -hmm. grow up, you know, it's going to cost you thousands of dollars per month in Amazon burn. If you don't like it, you, you're, apparently you're not ready for AI or like that's it's way more emotional. So like for them, it's, it's very upsetting. And, and the thing they don't, so this is the thing I love is these are all the things the CEO was thinking about you, but they didn't say. And hopefully if people realize this, it will scare them into doing the right thing. So as a CEO, so now Ben Taylor's turning into, I'm not a CEO, but now I'm turning into a CEO for a second. Ben Taylor's the CEO. You sit down and you're going to present for 30 minutes or an hour. Let's say you schedule an hour with me. The more you make me understand the data and the steps you took to get to success, the more I want to fire you. <laughs> and <laughs> because, I'm, because I'm confused, you're wasting my time. I don't get the point of this. What's the recommendation? And if we could have a 30-minute meeting where you say, these are the final results. This is the team that did it. These are potential concerns. These are potential pros. This is my recommendation to you. Because a lot of times at the data science team, we show them all of this work. They're trying to understand it. They're confused by it. And we see it as validation that we're smart, validation that we're working hard for them. But then at the end, a decision has to be made. Is this model ready to go in production? What are next steps? And a lot of times we rely on the CEO to make that decision, but they hired you to make that decision. Mm -hmm. Like you can... It's better for you to give a recommendation and for them to disagree with it mm -hmm. or for them to challenge it. Be like, you know, imagine like me saying, I recommend that this model is ready to go in production and we should sell it or we, like we should sell it to the customer. Now there's an opportunity to say, I don't trust you. Great. Let's talk about it. So like, that's the saddest part is that meeting we just talked about 60 minutes was wasted going through data. Instead, we should have spent 60 minutes talking about, I don't trust you. Oh, you don't? Why? Let's talk about it. Why don't you trust me? How do I know? This? Like, that's a much more productive conversation because the first scenario, CEO is confused. No real actions came out of the meeting. They're wondering when you're going to be productive. They're wondering if they should fire you. They're wondering if they made a mistake. They don't know if this is a good idea. They know they need to invest in AI because they're supposed to. There's just a lot of terrible things they think after that other meeting. This meeting is radical candor, candor, right to the point, your recommendation, no confusion, no jargon. Like, yeah, you can, I've been this data scientist. I've been the first one. I've been the bad one. But I'd say most data scientists fall into the bad category. They're very technical. They can communicate with each other. They can't communicate well with an executive. Where now in my career, I would love, I love talking to executives because they're so focused on value, focused on growth. 
and and you can talk to an executive and not use a single word of data science jargon. And okay. it, but yeah, so it's how do you learn it? You just go through the meat grinder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So. Uh-huh. I've heard about this pyramid principle, like when you start from the, you know, from the final, from the recommendation, and if need be, you, you know, you kind of go down deeper in the technical implementation and whatnot. But you start with the yes. results, and then if needed, you go down. You should, you should have an appendix. Mm-hmm. So if a CEO says, "Did you guys try anything else?" You say, "Yes, absolutely." Jump to the mm-hmm. appendix. Um, The thing that is very top of mind for me now is this idea of time efficiency. Like if I could scream at the top of my lungs, time efficiency. So for an executive, time efficiency is everything. Get to the point, tell them what they need to know. Do they like, uh, cause the thing I, I'm realizing now, like if you are having a conversation and if the CEO of the company is not mission critical, like we're talking minutes, Like within minutes, if they're not critical for this conversation, they should leave the meeting. That's true. And I know Elon does this. Like he'll just, if he realizes he's not needed for this meeting, he just leaves. And he does that all the time. And like that's, and I think most CEOs should do that. Most CEOs should be rude. And and, and I, I don't, I, let me rephrase that. So most CEOs shouldn't be worried about your feelings. They should do what's, prudent they should do what's useful they should make the best use of their time and even if you're a very senior person in the company if i'm the ceo and if i walk into the meeting and within a few minutes i realize that you don't need me or this is not productive i i might be kind enough to say be like hey i don't get the sense i'm needed i'm going to leave this meeting mm-hmm. which is really like hey you screwed up you have an opportunity to save it or tell me why i should be here and if you don't have a good argument then i'm leaving uh, most ceos should act like that because their their time is so valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we talked a bit about uh, you know talking to executives. Um how about uh, giving talks at the conference? So you said yeah, you should uh, of course same high like set the bar high uh you know give uh, big talks uh, be try to be remembered for five years. <laughs> And uh, yeah, so I have a few uh, questions here so first is like first how do you get to a conference so to get it to a conference you need to um to send a talk proposal right so how yep. do you structure this talk proposal how do you write it in a way that uh, you know you get to the conference you get to speak because sometimes uh, the committee rejects your talk proposal right so like yeah. it can happen that to some on some conferences it's hard to speak right so you need yeah. to write a good proposal so do you have any suggestions like how how should they approach that like how should they write my talk proposal yeah that's a great question um so for people that are starting out their speaking career you it's easier for you to go land a local meetup like because you might be able to actually meet the meetup organizer and sometimes they're always looking for interesting talks so if you can work with the local meetup organizer get a talk there and actually get a recording something on youtube that'll give you something you can share so then you have a talk of yourself And you can even imagine a scenario where you could give a talk to no one. Like, hey, everyone listening, this weekend, you could organize a talk, you could go record a talk, post it to YouTube, you could share that link, trying to pitch yourself into a meetup or pitching yourself into a conference. That way they know that you, you know, you can give a talk, it's not gonna be terrible. I do like to understand the conference organizers' priorities. 
they have different priorities. So you doing like bag of words, NLP, they might be like, oh my gosh, like, no, thank you. Like we, we've already had that before, but if you do, doing a talk around reinforced learning or, or BERT or like something. So definitely understand the conference organizers needs. Sometimes I'll tease out a few topics. I might give them two or three topics. Um, it's also important to understand who the conference organizers are because they're, they're really the decision makers. The conference is their baby. The conference has to be good. Um, and conferences really, it's almost like your resume. So we have a work resume. I worked at this company. I did these projects. In a way, you have a speaker resume that I went to this mm -hmm. conference. Here's the talk. I went to this other conference. And you can kind of level up from being a speaker to like a featured speaker to a keynote speaker in different conferences. And that's super useful. Um, the, the one thought I had is you need to fight sameness. So you need to run away from sameness because so, humans are novelty seeking creatures. We remember things that are unique. You know, if we walk through the forest, we're going to forget everything except the bright red mushroom or like, or the, the new animal that we saw. Like we've never seen a rabbit before. We saw the rabbit. We're going to remember that rabbit forever. Mm -hmm. Like I think humans are so funny that way. So when you submit your, your idea, try to be creative, try to have a project that the, the other thing I'll tell to your audience you can actually scare yourself with the proposal. So what I mean by that, so I've talked about reckless commitment. So imagine if you're, you're a conference organizer and I'm saying, I'm gonna give a talk on this and this is some ambitious topic. This is something that I'm not qualified to give a talk on. But if you're the conference organer, organizer and if you bite at this, then, oh shit, now I've got three months to like bust myself to make that happen. And so that's something I would encourage people to do is that the joke is if you land yourself on the schedule to give a talk on any topic that's months away, you will be an expert by the time that talk comes. You might cry at night, you might lose sleep over it, <laughs> you might read a lot of books, but by the time you give that talk, because I, I think there's also this concept of imposter syndrome, and I think that can shut people down where it's funny because I remember giving a few talks. I gave a talk at San Francisco once and there's someone on the front row that was asking some question about like different norms on my cost function or something. And, and I think sometimes as a speaker that that can shut you down where you're like, is it? And so I, I like telling for people listening, I like just saying guaranteed there's someone in the audience smarter than you. So don't, don't try to be the smartest person in the room because that can backfire. So during Q and a, if someone asks you a question, if you don't know the answer, and if you think the question is kind of embarrassing, the temptation is to try to answer it, but that's really bad. Don't try to answer a question you don't know the answer to. So if I, if I ask you a technical question, there's a good chance that the technical question is so technical, you don't know the answer. It's actually not a lot of value to the audience. It's, it's literally me. Sometimes you get people in an audience where I want to prove that I'm the smartest person in the room. You gave the talk. I, I'm on the front row and I raise my hand. I'm asking you a very technical question. You don't know the answer to it. It's not a valuable question. No one in the audience cares about this question. It's just me being a, a jerk because I want, I was invited to speak, but I want people to know I'm important. And so I've, so that's something that's interesting to get over is you're never going to be the smartest person in the room. So just give up. And if you ask a smart question, if I don't know the answer to it, I can say, oh, does anyone else in the audience know the answer? Or, oh, let's talk about this after. I, I'd love to hear your perspective. 
mm-hmm. and then go on to the next question where you actually can answer it. So yeah, start speaking, get past the parts where you feel intimidated. Everyone's going to be nervous mm-hmm. at the beginning. Q&A can be terrifying, but not if you decide that there are smarter people in the audience and you decide that you won't pretend to answer a question you can't and it's okay. And I think you also mentioned that uh, you shouldn't aim straight away to, I don't know, keynote at Strata or something like uh, high profile. It's okay to start with local meetups like, uh, and then gradually build your portfolio, build your like speaker CV and then, uh, And then this is how you get on the conferences by speaking first on local meetups. And this is how you get on Strata by first speaking on local conferences, right? And this yeah. is how you get on uh, a keynote uh, um, by speaking at, uh, you know, conferences. This is right, right? Yeah, It, that is right. And I'd also say you pr- nobody could probably land a keynote at these bigger conferences because you need to have a track record. You need to have a personal brand or, or maybe an employer's Like a lot of times for those keynotes, the keynote has to be a draw for the conference. And so the keynote might be a specific brand, an individual who's built up a name for themselves or a company. They really want some director from this particular company, but you don't have to work at Google or Facebook or these bigger companies to land a keynote. You, you can land keynotes by working for a very small company if you've built up a reputation because They, they want the talk to be good. If you've proven that you can be a good speaker and if you're gaining momentum, then you can begin landing feature talks and keynotes. And um, yeah, so, so just asking to be a keynote speaker, the default answer will be no mm-hmm. until someone builds up the brand, until they get this track record or until they have this role where they can do that. But they, you've probably seen keynote speakers too where they're awful, they're bad. And that's because they're being pulled in because of a brand, because of a company brand. Like, oh, so-and-so at Google or at this company is going to be slotted in. If they're not a good keynote speaker, then the decision was made because of the company brand. Or it could be a sponsored talk. Sometimes mm-hmm. those keynote talks are actually paid for by the company that's giving the talk. So okay. roll, roll the dice on if it's a good speaker. Mm-hmm. So as a new data science professional, what topics and uh, groups would be good to start with? I'm not a deep learning expert, but I understand business and data. This is something Eric is asking. Um, So you, I feel like everything in life falls into a levy distribution. So it's like the normal distribution with a long tail. So most of data science falls in this normal distribution of usefulness. So think of like, Pandas data frames, uh, Bayesian methods, building models like sklearn, data frames, just the Python foundation, Docker. It's all useful. All of this is great. On the long tail, you've got deep learning, reinforced learning, and these things that are very sexy. They're very exciting. So a lot of people getting into data science, they say, I want to have deep learning do video games. Or I want to like do this. But a lot of the jobs and a lot of the value and the work to be done is not that. Like you will find use cases, but they're quite rare. So I think to start out, um, the the dream scenario is AI, a lot of times AI moves the wrong direction. It's AI looking for a problem to solve, and that's dangerous because sometimes you find the wrong problem where it's much more powerful if you have a problem that's being backed into the right tool set. So for people starting out, whether you're currently employed, 
um, trying to find a business problem that's big, it's important, it matters. You, you know if you can automate it or augment it or get some insight here, it'll impact the company and then try to back into the appropriate solutions. Um, and there's a good chance deep learning is not the appropriate solution for you know, mm-hmm. customer churn or click-through rate or some, you know, some, something related to the business that matters. It could be something that's handled with just structured data. And you've got options for that that are very easy. And one of the things I like to bring up is everything used to be hard. 10 years ago, everything was hard. Today, a lot of this stuff is very easy. So if you have a structured data set and you want to build something, this this isn't a research project that should take months. This is Googling, we're using pre-built software, or these solutions should be very easy to do. So yeah, start there, find the problems first, back them into the right solutions, leverage the data science community to help you. Uh, go to data science meetups. You'll be very impressed with... Um, you have two different worlds between academia, so coming right out of school, and then the applied meetup space. There's a lot of behaviors and skills over here that don't do not exist over here. So definitely try to become injected into the applied meetup space, and you'll find peers that can help you. That's a much longer answer mm-hmm. to a short question, but yeah, great question. <laughs> yes, and then the, also Eric is asking, and I think this is a follow-up question to the previous one: is like, how would you pitch to speak at an event like a meetup? I think we briefly covered that, but let's say in, using the same scenario, like uh, you just take something a relatively straightforward business problem you use, um, you use like a tools like Scikit-Learn to solve this problem. So you have the solution, right? So how do you pitch to speak to meetup organizers to talk about this solution on a meetup. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a great, um, it, it kind of comes back to first impressions and introductions because one of my favorite stories, uh, Rico went to Data Science Co. in 2017. He loved the conference. And at the end of the conference, so this is a young kid, I think he was 20. At the end of the conference, he walks up to the conference organizer and says, I'm going to present here next year. And the conference organizer in his head is thinking, no, no, you're not. It's like, like you're some, you know, beginner, new junior data scientist, and you think you're going to present here. But it, the kid was able to. The kid wasn't able to on that short conversation, but the kid ended up doing a lot. So the kid went out there, started a meetup, did all these things where the organizer kept track on this kid and thought, holy crap, like, this kid is out of control in a good way. And so the kid ended up presenting the next year and, and gave a great talk. Um, so first impression matters. So who are you? What company do you work at? Um, you don't need to have that to back your reputation. You can also get endorsements. So imagine if like you and I know someone in the community and we, and they, we endorse them. We say like, oh, this person's really good. They're up and coming. You, you should definitely give a, actually I had a neighbor of mine young kid in college wasn't he was just doing research in college and he presented at a local meetup and i i recommended that he should so like i've been i presented and i kind of pitched his idea so you, you can leverage other people networking is so important they don't teach you that in college but networking is so important the people you know can really help get you that first talk um especially if they trust it's funny because i'm sometimes we get people asking for recommendations where we don't actually know them and that doesn't really work like we 
but if we if we know someone if you can meet someone you're more likely to you know to kind of take some risk and say hey i think this person would be good you should have them present that that can go a long way okay thank you um so in your opinion well matthew is asking what is the top um public speaking skill that uh, people should uh, should reach for uh Storytelling is a big umbrella, so I'd, I hate to just say storytelling, but if you become, the biggest thing they should reach for is storytelling. So if you, and maybe to kind of slant that a different way, it's, you should have a goal to maximize attention. And in, um, in data science, we're used to this. We're like, oh yeah, optimizers, you know, convex problems, non-convex, like we like optimizing. So treat this like a data science problem. You should maximize the attention of your audience and not just one person the average attention of the audience you should maximize it and so that that's the number one skill you you can you should have and there's a good chance that's going to back into storytelling where it's it's hard to do but it's not an impossible problem it's mm -hmm. it's a predictable problem i if you gave me two recorded talks this person this person and those talks are going to be streamed like they're live I'm pretty sure I could tell you ahead of time which talk will do better. Like it's not, yeah. So maximize attention of your audience for the entire talk. Okay. Okay. Yeah, there is more, so much more we can talk about this, like how to get, uh, how to do this. But uh, yeah, let's do one more question again from Matthew. Uh, I know you can give a long answer to this question, but uh, maybe you can keep it, to short. keep it short. Yeah. So yeah. how does someone get started in AI evangelism? If it's, of course, possible to give a short answer to that question. Um, I think having a speaking track record can be very useful. Uh, we actually just hired a, a new evangelist role literally this week. And for some of the candidates that we were looking at, they, they had been speaking. So... Mm -hmm. Get out there, start speaking, build up your LinkedIn. Um, that, that's a great way to be um, honest. And I don't want to make this answer longer. But the, the other thing, too, is if someone could actually convince me that they're a good speaker, I'd be very interested in hiring them. How would they do that? Um, if, they, if they presented at a local conference and they were number one at that conference, like they had some audience feedback, said, hey, I presented here. 30 speakers, I had feedback, I'm the number one best speaker. I have the recorded talk. I'd say, oh, great, I'll watch it. I'll watch the recorded talk. So like that, that could be an opportunity to kind of, um, yeah, I, I'm very interested in, but, but speaking, that's the main way to kind of build up that speaking experience. Okay, maybe for, for people who are still here on uh, our stream, maybe, I don't know, do you have any recommendation like a book, a course or something that uh, uh, people who, for those who are interested, you know, building this uh, public speaking skill, what is the number one thing they should uh, try after this chat? Um, so books, I like stories that stick. Um, I, for, I forget the author's name, so I'm just going to read titles. There's The Hero with 10,000 Faces. There's a book called Play Bigger. It talks about category creation, which I think is, is very useful. I, I love um, The Lean Startup by Eric Reese. It's not, it's not to make you a better speaker, but it kind of 
I love the mindset of failing before you start. And so it, can you fail on a talk before you start? So if I have a talk idea, can I, before I invest time and energy into doing it or like research, if I've got a research idea for a talk, can I just fail today? Mm-hmm. Before I even start, can I fail? So I, I love the idea of failing today and saving all that time rather than committing to something. Um, and it's something you can start today. I do love the idea of if you've got kids, start telling them stories today. But these aren't stories you're reading. You're winging it. Just tell them a story from your childhood, something stupid you did, something funny, exciting, sad. Tell them a story and and practice that. And if you become, I think in the next year, if you become a better storyteller and and the evidence of success is your kids begin to ask for another story, another story, like the second. And so if you you can really level up and, and practice maintaining their attention, kids have short attention spans. This is a good practice you know, if you have their attention, so practice maintaining their attention. And if you get better at this, you will be a better speaker. Okay. Well, and those who don't have kids. <laughs> there, there are, some, there are some local meetups. I think Toastmasters. Okay. I've never done Toastmasters, but I know they, they will go and practice presenting to each other. Mm-hmm. So it'd be the same thing. Like be very, a big part of being a good speaker is having good emotional intelligence and being able to read your audience. If your audience is checking out, if you're, if the energy is going down, you have to fix it as a speaker and, and you, as a speaker, you're not scripted. Like you, you can do all sorts of things to fix that attention. And, and sometimes it, it's hard. It takes a lot of energy and sometimes you screw it up just like a comedian. Some comedians, they're really funny and sometimes they have off nights and they just doesn't work. They, it's terrible. So you, you, you need to practice. I, I still have terrible talks on the horizon, <laughs> but hopefully more, hopefully fewer than I had before. Yeah. So that talk where somebody fall, fell asleep, was it recorded? No, uh, no, I wish it was. <laughs> okay. um, Pat, Pat Wright, he's teased me that he has some recordings on YouTube of my early talks in the Utah tech scene that he said were terrible. <laughs> so okay. so may, maybe i should i should reach out to him to see if i can yes. fish out one of the worst talks ever recorded that i've given and, and it'd be fun now to actually critique it to you know break it up and say why it's bad okay so i suggest uh, we should be prepping up because i think your next meeting okay. starts in 20 minutes and you still need to reach yep. home uh, i don't yep. think you want to have it from your car <laughs> like this one. yeah Okay, so thanks a lot for coming, uh, for joining us today and sharing all these stories uh, with us and uh, demonstrating your storytelling skills. I think, I I don't know, I didn't count uh, the number of stories you told, but I think it was at least five. So (laughs) you you reminded me of um, one last thing. So I've had people say that I have an unfair advantage. And they've said I have an unfair advantage because some of my stories are so ridiculous. Just like (laughs) one of the things I didn't mention, when I went to college, I lived in the woods. So I lived in the snow and it made national news in the U.S. And I had two sponsors. So while students are living indoors going to college, I'm living in the snow (laughs) every day. And so like I have lots of these types of stories. I used to hitchhike across the Nevada desert and I did all these things as a kid. So I, I have a lot of stories that I can pull from, but I would argue that everyone 
everyone has stories, but mine are kind of over the top. <laughs> Not everyone can uh, can you know pull this. Uh, I mean, like have this kind of background. Yeah, uh, I heard yeah, about yeah. that. I think uh, was what I think it was the Revit show when you talked about this uh, your story about living in the woods. So for those who yeah. are interested, maybe check that and. Uh... I I've got a a news link I can message you. So it's a YouTube okay, clip. Yes. You, they can actually watch the news clip when I'm 20 or 19 <laughs> nice. being interviewed on the news. I will definitely put it in this in the description in the in the YouTube video. So thanks a lot. And if you have any more stories to share, uh, maybe you can also send a few links. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Yes, now it was uh, great chatting with you. So yeah, thank you. Sorry about the car setup. Um, I'm ah, glad that I was, was I thought it was fun. Like maybe I can even say later, hey, I had Ben in his car, not like in his usual studio. Yeah, <laughs> not so many uh, right. podcast hosts can actually, uh, you know, say that. Yeah. So I feel special. Well, yeah, great, great <laughs> to see you again, Alexi. Thanks for doing this. Yes. Uh, have a nice day.